0: If you could please turn off your phones, just a gentle reminder to double check. My name is Chelsea Sherbet and I am delighted to be your moderator today. Um, you've, you've all been to SACPA before, I see a lot of familiar faces, but I'll remind everyone of the format for today. Uh, the talk and the question and answer period that follows will be recorded and will be available on SACPA's website in case you miss anything. Uh, we're grateful to Shaw Spotlight, who records these presentations, um, and will use excerpts from the PowerPoint uh, in, in their daily broadcast. Please put $14 for your lunch in the basket at the centre, and remember to appoint a banker to double-check that the amount is correct for everyone at the table. If you'd rather not have the lunch, you're welcome to put $2 in for coffee, water, tea, your beverage of choice. Uh, SACPA will collect the bowls at 12.30. Format of the meeting today. Dr. Thomas will speak for 25 to 30 minutes for the presentation. Then we will take a break for lunch, and then we will reconvene for a question and answer period, uh, and we'll be all done and out of here by about 1.30 this afternoon. So all of those formalities aside, I am very excited today to um, introduce Dr. Melanie Thomas. Dr. Thomas is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on the causes and consequences of gender-based political inequality in Canada and other post-industrial democracies. And today Dr. Thomas will be speaking to us about whether women premiers in Canada are less likely to be re-elected than men. Thank you Dr. Thomas.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I'm just starting a timer because usually the shortest period I get for a class is 50 minutes, so (laughs) I'm used to taking all the time. Um, The project that I want to speak to you about uh, is based on this particular paper. So I started doing work on gender in the Premier's office back in 2014 when I saw... What Alison Redford at that point was had cycled out of the Premier's office, but also uh, Kathy Dunderdale over in Newfoundland and Labrador. And everybody will say, I know exactly what happened with Alison Redford. I don't need a gendered story about that. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador should give us a bit of pause, and I'll show you the kind of context with what's going on with these women. Uh, what I was mostly looking at, though, was I observed that... Um, Most of the women who were selected as premiers were selected into the office first because their parties put them there. There were already parties who were holding government, and I thought, this looks like a pattern that I haven't seen before. So usually when it comes to gendered work, one of the things I'll do is I'll see if there's a pattern and if it's different for women and men, and often it is. And so the question I would ask is, well, why why is that? uh, quick rundown. Who were the premiers in uh, Canadian politics? We start in 1991 with Rita Johnson, uh, the last social credit premier in British Columbia. If you remember Bill van Der Zem, you will remember the problems that Bill van Der had with his garden centre. Uh, and so when people in the premier's office are charged with criminal breach of trust, yeah, Um, What's interesting about this particular leadership selection is that only women contested this one, and so BC was going to have a woman service premier for the last little bit of the Socred term in 91. Uh, Then we have Catherine Callbeck in Prince Edward Island. Um, She left the premier's office, so comes into the premier's office uh, in 93, uh, strong party. She leaves before the next provincial election to be appointed to the Senate, and her party promptly loses the next provincial election. Then we have a gap between 1993 and 2010. So again, as a gender scholar, things I would note is that if gender isn't an issue here, I shouldn't see a gap. That's two decades. Uh, we do see some women coming forward as territorial premiers, but I leave them aside because the territorial, territories have such a different constitutional status, and it hadn't quite devolved as much as what we see now then, that I I don't deal with the territories here. Um, Kathy Dunderdale comes through after Danny Williams, so she is made premier first through a leadership selection process. Then Christy Clark in 2011 made premier first through a leadership selection process after Gordon Campbell resigned. Uh, Then we have Alison Redford. Uh, After Ed Stelmack resigned, Alison Redford unexpectedly wins the leadership selection process for the PCAA in Alberta and becomes premier in 2012. First premier selected through general election in 2012, Pauline Marois. Pauline Marois has like the most impressive cabinet credentials of anybody that I have ever seen. She's got the power trifecta. She was Minister of Finance, Minister of Health, Minister of Education. She contested her party leadership three times, and the party never selected her until the party finished third for the first time since it first took government back at the end of the 70s. Um, Pauline Marois is also the architect of Quebec's then five-dollar-a-day childcare policy. Um, so, like, this is a I say what you want, about the Charter of Quebec Values really hurt me as a, like a Pauline Marois fan because I was like, no, this is not what your legacy should be. Your legacy should be five-dollar-a-day childcare. Anyway, uh, Kathleen Wynne comes in in Ontario, and then Rachel Notley is the second um, woman to made, be made premier in Canada, first through general election. So to look at this particular project, I wanted to look at what happened. What was the context when these women were made premier first? The narrative that motivates this is that when women started to cycle out, they said, well, of course we wouldn't expect these women to be elected. They get one election in them, maybe. But their parties are in trouble. Their parties are so much in trouble that we would never expect them to have the ability to win a second election. Uh, So this is why I looked first. In order for this narrative to be true, you would have to have evidence for a party being in trouble before the woman was selected as leader. Otherwise, it's post-hoc rationalization, and it might be intuitive, but it's not correct. So we have to see evidence that a party is in trouble before the woman comes into the office, before the woman is selected as a leader, uh, before uh, we would, in order for this narrative to actually work. Okay. Cool. We've only had eight women premiers total, and uh, as I've queued, um, only two were selected to the bish- position first through a general election. The pattern for men is 50-50. So if you are a man leading a party and you become premier of your province, you are it's about one in two shot that you might get there first through a general election or because the party selected you and you were already in government. Uh, that surprised me, to be honest. Um, we've only had one woman serve as federal prime minister as well, and I will talk about um, her briefly in this context as well too. What do we know from previous scholarship? I apologize if this is too small to read, sorry. Um, what we find when we look at party leadership selection, and the reason why we look at party leadership selection to explain this is because we have parties in government. So if you want to, be ahead of government, you need to be able to lead a party that is competitive enough to win enough seats to form government. This is what we know about party leadership selection in Canada. Um, parties that are electorally competitive enough typically don't elect select women as party leaders. What they do is they select, uh, the prototypical party that selects a woman as a leader is uh, left leaning and electorally uncompetitive. A smaller left-leaning. So parties that are, you know, competitive for government typically select men. This means that Rachel Notley uh, fits the literature closest out of all of the eight women that we have. She was elected or selected leader uh, of the Alberta NDP in October 2014. At the time, the NDP caucus was four. Uh, It was an uncompetitive leadership convention, but I mean the NDP is a small left-leaning party. So Rachel Notley, prototypical, fits the literature. She's the only one that fits the party leadership selection literature. When I look at the most important, impressive books about this, uh, looking at parties all across the world in parliamentary democracies, they don't even talk about what it means to be selected your party leader while your party is in government. Like, it's just kind of not something that was discussed. So this is one of the other th- reasons why I look at gender, because it highlights a pattern that we haven't explained yet. So uh, Andre Blay and Bill Cross, two excellent scholars, they wrote the book on party leadership selection in parliamentary democracies. And uh, they literally just don't talk about this phenomenon. So we have Rachel Notley. I can explain Rachel Notley. I can also explain the 2015 election really succinctly, if you like. Ask me about that in the question period. Um, then we have to start asking questions about the other seven women. So the literature that comes up on gender and politics, and this also comes from business as well, because women aren't selected to be in the C-suite, they're not selected to lead corporations as often as our men, despite the fact that research shows from economics that if you meaningfully integrate women onto corporate boards in a way that means that they're not tokens, like they're actually doing meaningful work, uh, you make more money. <laughs> That's the part that gets me where it's like, you would think that making more money would be like the thing that would drive stuff, right? And when I speak to risk managers, like the people who are like best on gender in the corporate world are the risk managers because they're like, I see all the risk. I want to mitigate all the risk. But we don't see that when it comes to the C-suite appointments. Anyway, so this is in the business literature. This is also in the party leadership selection uh, literature. When a party is competitive, they might be more likely to select a woman as leader if they are in crisis or if they are in a protracted decline. So crisis and decline create a strategic context that would discourage men who might otherwise take the position or it might eliminate them entirely. And I'll talk about two examples where you'll see discouragement and then also elimination in both of these. So what this does is it changes the opportunity structure. So when you would have competitive women who would be great, but there's a whole bunch of men cluttering the field. Think the Democratic nominee process, the field there for the Democratic nominee for president for the next one that's coming up for 2020, like if you look at that, there are excellent women and they're not being covered and we're not talking about them because there are also a bunch of men who are crowding the field because they think it's a great opportunity for them. So this is what a cluttered field would look like and I'm willing to bet 10 bucks that the Democrats will select a man in this context, despite Elizabeth Warren being amazing. Um, So what happens with crisis or decline is that men who might normally select in, select out, and that creates the space for women to go. This is where strategy matters because usually you'll look at this context and if women are strategic actors, they'll say, this is my moment, I know it's not a great one. But this is my moment, so I'm going to take it. Two key examples, Angela Merkel and Margaret Thatcher. Angela Merkel represents when your party is in crisis, Thatcher is when your party is in decline. Merkel first. So Merkel comes through in German politics, I won't go into the details, but they've got this kind of strong connection between her party. They have like the party that's at the subnational level and it links strongly to the federal party. Uh, And she was around and seen to be important. She's from East Germany, so like she was presented in a really quite sexist way as being like the pet of her party leader. And then a crisis happened, scandals come and it literally takes out for leadership contention people who are already in party leadership at the federal level and at the regional level uh, and takes out most of the people who are competitors as well. It was a major crisis for the party. Merkel manages to not be affected by the crisis. She's not somebody who's done something bad enough that would get her sent to jail, unlike most of these men. Uh, And so she's able to get into a position where she literally was seen to be the heir apparent and none of the men are left, literally none of the men are left. So she gets selected very quickly after this into party leadership, and then we know what happens after this. Angela Merkel was a very long-serving German chancellor. right? So that's crisis. Literally all the men who would have been competitive, taken out by scandal. Thatcher is different. Uh, and I've had reviewers on this particular piece, including the journal editors, push back on this one saying, I don't remember th- the conservatives with Thatcher being in trouble much. And what I will say is too young to remember, but when I read that a party has lost a general election twice in 12 months, are not doing good, they're not doing good. Um, This is where, say we want about Margaret Thatcher, but I see her as a good political operator precisely because Edward Heath was party leader, so Heath loses government, loses an election in less than a calendar year, and because British parties do this kind of caucus-based process for leadership, Thatcher, with impressive cabinet experience, but not as much as some of the men in her caucus, challenges his leadership. So she's the one who sticks her neck out and makes space. She wins the leadership challenge, but she doesn't win enough support on that challenge to actually become party leader. So they have to go to another vote. All of a sudden, a bunch of men come out being like, oh, oh, the opportunity structure has changed, great. Um, Maggie has paved the way and I'm going to take party leadership now. Uh, I will say this for Margaret Thatcher, this is how she got selected as leader. It was on that second ballot when all of the guys who weren't prepared to take the risk in terms of making the space for leadership jumped on the bandwagon. That was when she was selected leadership leader there. So decline, certainly, but also somebody who was very active and progressively making her own political space. So, who are the Canadians who were in crisis? Criminal Breach of Trust, Bill Mandersam, Rita Johnson very obviously in crisis, and Pauline Marwa, Uh, When the Parti Québécois finishes third to the ADQ and to the Liberals in the mid-aughts, their leader resigns. It's the first time that they had finished anything but first or second since the late 70s. Uh, This is when they actually invited her to become party leader, and she accepted. Uh, So she's one of the only ones who's also selected by acclamation. So these are parties that are clearly in crisis. And if you think about crisis in terms of, like, we're going to lose party or something very bad has happened, people have gone to jail, stuff like this. I would say that Kim Campbell is also in this position. Uh, I remember looking at the Spicer Report and teaching this and seeing that, like, the most striking thing about it was that people, um, the comments from the public were just uniformly negative about the Mulrady government following the Charlottetown Accord. For a variety of reasons, we can talk about why that's the case, but, like, when you're... uh, majority government in single-digit popularity and, like, nobody likes you and the GST and all these other sorts of things. I would say the PCs were a party in crisis and there was nothing Kim Campbell would have been able to do about that. Um, so that's three I can explain, Rachel Notley and those two women as premiers. That leaves me with five left. So then the question is, well, what does it mean to be in decline? I. In defined being in decline as the protracted clear like waning of support like you can see you have to be able to see the decline coming and it has to be something that's measurable and you do need to be able to see it over time and so I measured five things um, the first was election performance so I wanted to see how many seats how well the party did the election before did they lose a bunch of seats or not um, there is a very fancy mathematical measure that I did not develop but I went to grad school with the guy who did so I just get him to run it for me on my data sets for these provincial ones. Um, This one is, we can't get it for all of them, but this is basically looking to see whether or not there is this protracted decline that you can, you don't necessarily see it per election, but this is when margins of victories in districts that you should hold start to constrict. When we run this federally, we can see the Liberal Party of Canada's bottoming out in 2011. We can start to see it in 2008. Like we see it really clearly, like where they're starting things, places that shouldn't be competitive are competitive for other parties who aren't the Liberals. And so I run that one Um, because elections happen years before like this stuff happens. I also look at by elections, which are less useful than what I would like because they're not held as often as would be useful for me (laughs) as a researcher, which is not why we should have by elections. But still, look at by elections. Um, Then I look at the money. Because if you're in decline, no one's donating, or you should see like your donations contract. And then, despite the fact that most of them are terrible, I look at the publicly available polls. And this is where I'm agnostic as to the quality of the polls. What I care about is the narrative that the public is getting about the position of a party, whether or not they're competitive, whether or not they're down in the polls. And so even if they're totally terrible polls, you still get stories about them. And so that's why I look at those. Um, All of these things, if you look at the paper, you can see these discussed in great detail. Um, The Cliff's Notes version is that I can explain one more, which is Kathleen Wynne. So what's interesting about Kathleen Wynne, um, she's the only woman in this mix where the seat losses, the election previous for her party were bad. They were bad, real bad. Um, Her party, the stability of party support, looking at these things over the past two elections, uh, she doesn't have enough to hold majority government. So they're okay, but they're not great. Um, contributions were down by nearly 2 million, though the party still took in over 4 million. Uh, and the polls, if the, when she was selected, if an election was held that day, they would have lost government. So uh, I look at Kathleen Wynn and I say, yeah, all of those indicators line up. Uh, they didn't have the by-elections, there weren't enough. There was one, and I think they held it, um, or there were two, and they split them. So it wasn't super instructive. But looking at some of all of those other ones together, looking at those five, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that looks like decline. What about the others? Uh, Catherine Callback is admittedly the most difficult. In 1993, Prince Edward Island used dual-member districts which means doing that kind of like stability of support over time is just, we can't do it because they're electing more than one person per district. And I still think that they do. PEI elections are interesting that way. Um, And also they don't go back as far as that in terms of donations data. I think in the 90s, we weren't actually requiring public disclosure of money and stuff like that, the way that we are now. And so with Catherine Callbeck, it's really hard to tell. The best thing that I can offer is that, um, Joe Giz had been premier prior to this for a really long period of time. So, this was a long in the tooth government. And people outside of Alberta will say, if a party has served for like 15 years, yes, you would kind of naturally expect them to cycle out of office. And this is where I'm like, but 1971 to 2015, right? Like, I'm not prepared to use long in the tooth only as an indicator of like something's gonna happen. Kathy Dunderdale, Kathy Dunderdale, um, the previous election, her party increased their seat total by 10. Uh, their donations increased. The polls looked amazing when they when she was selected. This is the next slide here. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to see um, Dunderdale is selected. I can see it on the screen because the shade of gray for like the dots for the polls is the same shade as the line. Uh, There's a poll on that line that is as high as it's like at 80%. So when Dunderdale is selected party leader, 80% of decided voters in Newfoundland and Labrador say that they're going to vote for her party. You can see, A precipitous decline after that. I think this is what happens when you have a very popular leader who defines the party and then they go. The party struggles to find an identity after this. Um, But if you look at the blowback that Kathy Dunderdale got, a lot of it was vicious and a lot of it was about her, despite the fact that I'm pretty sure anyone who wasn't Danny Williams was going to run into this trouble. So there's still gendered stuff, but you can't say her party was struggling when they selected her. Same thing with Christy Clark. So Christy Clark is interesting. In British Columbia, Gordon Campbell didn't go to jail, um, but he had people in his office who had some criminal issues. And so the question is whether or not the, that was a like BC liberal issue or if that was a Gordon Campbell hired people who did bad things issue. Um, the election previous, there was no change in the party's vote share. Um, donations were down for them, but they still collected nine million dollars. So that's the one where I'm like, really like what's the difference between 11 million versus 9 million in a regulated campaign finance context? like that's probably more than they can spend in a year. Um, the polls weren't bad. Uh, and it was a really competitive leadership contest. Clark entered later. Uh, and rode up the middle, and that's how she was able to secure the leadership uh, contest. Alison Redford, um, when she was selected, uh, stable party support for the PCs. They would have, they, the 54 of 83 seats were PC strongholds. That's a majority government. Um, they had won 10 more seats the election previous. Uh, donations were stable. Uh, so I look at Alison Redford and say, anybody who wanted to post-hoc say that it was because the PCs were in trouble, uh, I say, I don't see it. Now, I have a colleague, David Stewart, at the University of Calgary, who studies party leadership um, much more seriously than I do, and he says, but there was a split, the Wild rose. So when a party breaks, that's a crisis, even if everything else looks good. At which point I say, yes, but like Paul Hinman has been around since 2003, so, like, is this just because Danielle Smith was a much better party leader than Paul Hinman was and was able to get donations that to the Wildrose in 2008 or when she started to take over party leadership? Maybe, but that's a difference between a competent leader versus not, as opposed to your party splits. I mean, but then he will say there were floor crossings and things, and David and I have debated this a lot. His office is right next door to mine, so <laughs> we have these conversations over and over and over again. I still think that the PCAA was in a reasonably strong position when Redford was selected, strong enough that we shouldn't have seen some of the things that we did. So that means that I can explain about half of the cases, uh, or the literature and the information, and the arguments that we have available to us can explain about half the cases. Um, what does this mean? So this doesn't give us, what this suggests is that we shouldn't have seen these women cycling out of the Premier's office as quickly as what we did. And so when people will say um, gender doesn't matter for why these parties led by women lost elections, I will say usually that there are bigger factors that are known in electoral behavior um, that I think are the primary drivers, but their effects are gendered. The reason why some of this stuff comes up is important, and as an elections person, I can totally see them. Um, They come up, but the way that people react to them are gendered. So if I'm thinking about Alison Redford, uh, there was Len Weber, Len Weber is now a member of parliament in Calgary. Len Weber was an MLA and said, I find her leadership style to be too authoritarian for me to be able to stomach being in her caucus. He basically effectively called her a very nasty word in a press conference. And then on the next breath said, so I'm going to move to a different level of government um, to be in under the leadership of Stephen Harper, who was not known for being warm and fuzzy in his caucus management. And so for me, I find it just kind of like interesting. So like dictatorial it might be a strong language Able to use for Stephen Harper and his caucus management, but you'll know people were, pre- like, this, a man who was prepared to take that from a man was not prepared to take that kind of leadership from a woman. Uh, this is what I mean when I say these things can be consistent, but they become problems for women in ways that they aren't for men. Um, things that people will have also said, oh, well, but it's social media and all these other sorts of things. And this is my pitch for saying that you need to look at gender and ideology and gender and partisanship. Because Twitter has been a thing since, like, what, 2006? People really started getting into it in 2010, 2012, stuff like this. I think the first time my dean tagged me in a tweet was 2012, and that's when I needed to change my handle so that it was much more professional than what I had signed up for as a graduate student. Uh, so um, if it was, it can't just be social media. This is my pitch. Social media's been around for a really long time. Social media really predates Rachel Notley by a lot. Um, You can see that there's an uptick in threats here. So Ed Stelmack is getting a bunch. And this is, I think, because people thought that the party might lose. Again, maybe because there's a competitive option, and that would have been the Wild Rose under Danielle Smith. Um, Alison Redford is getting a bunch, but it's split over a number of years. Prentice gets a very low number. And this is from just 2015. So this is half the year, and she's already gotten more. Things I will note, um, the CBC, women in politics don't talk about this, so I'm sure Kathleen Wynne got a shocking amount of this kind of stuff, in part because she was the first out lesbian, so she's the first sexual minority to head a government in Canada. And I was like, I couldn't find information about it, uh, because they keep it quiet, because it probably does have a chilling effect. So, intrepid journalists at the CBC foiped this, used freedom of information requests, Uh, with uh, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley. And the thing that came through very clearly, the picture there, that's a picture of every, like the stack of paper for all of these incidences. Um, If it's not about gender, if it's just about people not liking the NDP, why would they spike around the centenary of some women getting the right to vote? That would be 2016. uh, Because white women in Alberta got the vote in 20, in 1916, and we were the first, uh, so Saskatchewan and Manitoba got there before we did, but we were the first to hold an election in 1917, uh, so we celebrate the centennial. If this wasn't gendered, it would be, we wouldn't see this particular pattern, I don't think, but I think it's this combination, so that there's a certain kind of person who's going to be mad about women in a particular party right? Um, The other thing I would point out is that if it's not about gender, Christine Elliott would be Premier of Ontario. Because Christine Elliott, like Pauline Marois, say what you want about her politics, but her cabinet credentials were impeccable. Doug Ford's aren't and that Christine Elliott was not selected to lead the Ontario PCs. If she was the leader of the Ontario PCs, you would not be able to crack most of the jokes or give level most of the criticisms at the current government of Ontario that you are able to. You wouldn't have Twitter threads, people saying, I called Doug Ford and talked to him about this stuff because he does this. I've had students who have done this, which is interesting. Uh, And they'll say, I don't think he understands what's going on in his own government. Christine Elliott, say what you want about her, this would not be the context, right? And so you have to ask yourself, why would a party turn away a woman with impeccable credentials for a man who clearly doesn't have credentials at the same level? Um, Okay, so to me, this says that there's something going on with how we see women's political leadership in Canada. we know that when voters evaluate leaders, they're looking at their perceptions of their character and their perceptions of their competence. And this is where I think gender stereotypes matter. So when we do um, figure out the kind of, when we say stereotype, these are like blunt overgeneralizations, generalizations. Um, and you don't have to believe that they're true just to be aware that they are a thing. And so the stereotypes about what makes a good man and a good politician are about the same, intelligent, um, driven, uh, usually educated, things along these lines, um, kind of like a go-getter. Uh, I think you could even like slap the label entrepreneurial on it and like, it would probably fit. Uh, women though, the stereotype content of what it means to be a good woman has a lot of physicality in it. So like they're beautiful, they're soft, they're kind, they're compassionate, they're motherly, all these other sorts of things. I'm not saying that any of this is bad. What I'm saying is that none of that trans over translates over to the stereotype of a woman in politics. And it's often not seen to be good stuff To be a political leader. So, women in politics are stereotyped as being ambitious and driven and intelligent uh, and things that are generally good, but they're not, like, they don't get the kind of warmth and fuzziness and, like, the good stuff about what it means to be a woman. So, when we look at this stuff, especially my American colleagues will say, well, women in politics are, the problem is that they are stereotyped as being bad women. And this kind of drives me a bit crazy, because this is what I also get on my course evaluations, where I get, like some students, when I do get the sexist pushback, it's because you're not supposed to be in this position of leadership at the front of the classroom, or things along these lines, right? Like, it's pretty rare that I get this. I certainly got this more at other universities that weren't on the prairies. I think prairie politeness puts a bit of a filter on some of this stuff. Um, But I would also say that... There's something going on, especially with women exiting the Premier's office that we don't understand very well. And the difficulty is that you can't generate a good explanation with eight cases. So I'm looking at this now and saying, how many women do we have leading electorally competitive parties? Federally, as much as I like Elizabeth May, I don't think that the Green Party, uh, even though they've got one by-election victory, I don't think that they are electorally competitive for government. Um, In Alberta, we don't have any women leading parties competitive for government. You've got Andrea Horwath in Ontario. Well, but like it's the sort of thing where when we go back to this masculinized status quo, if you don't have women in these positions of party leadership, they're not going to get into government, which means that somebody like, I'm blunted in my ability to explain what's going on here. Um, What I can say, though, is that the easy, accessible explanations maybe get us halfway there. If they only get us halfway there, there's other stuff that's going on. This is, like, my, like, shameless pitch as a researcher to elect more women so that I have stuff to study. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> Don't actually do that or say that. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's one of these things where it's, it's not a very satisfying conclusion at the end of the day, but it is the honest one. We can maybe explain about half of it. Yeah. Thank you. And, yeah.